Metro Glass, a division of national dairy products, is another top-notch industrial. The Outline, World Dispatch. Wednesday, August 9th, 2017. I'm Kalila Dews. Today on The Dispatch, Gabby Del Valle on mass incarceration. People who can't afford bail will have to be in jail for the entire duration of their trial. And Derek Gaillot on Bollywood in America. The deal could be worth about $1 billion. And Jeffy Haza with an update on Arcade Fire. They do have the number one album in America right now. Here's The Dispatch. Power. According to a report this week, most criminal cases in the U.S. end in plea bargains, not trials. Gabby Del Valle is here to talk about that. Hey, Gabby. Hi, Kalila. You wrote about how 97% of state and federal convictions are the result of guilty pleas, and they're often by people who say they didn't commit a crime. Yeah. So why are people who claim they're innocent pleading guilty? The Atlantic recently ran a piece about how a lot of the time people will plead guilty to avoid a longer sent a longer trial because people who can't afford bail will have to be in jail for the entire duration of their trial. Meaning if you plead guilty, there's no trial to be had. So you can go back to your life as quickly as possible. And the time that you serve while you're in jail will be included in whatever sentence you're given, which is usually a reduced sentence. And the New York Times recently reported that New York and nine other states are states where prosecutors don't have to tell you what evidence they have against you. So for a lot of people, pleading guilty to a crime they didn't commit or just pleading guilty in general is a way of, again, avoiding a trial, but especially avoiding a trial if you don't even know what evidence they're going to bring in against you because Mm -hmm. there's, it's much harder for you to fight if you don't know what the evidence is. Um, So how long has this been going on and like has it changed at all? Ironically, uh, The Atlantic reported that when the Supreme Court passed these two cases that gave more rights to people who were being charged with things, that made cases take longer to be adjudicated. So plea bargains became really popular as a way of ideally for people who actually are guilty, just like easing the burden on the courts. But it's instead it's been used really as a target against people who are low income, often people of color. It's very like tied into mass incarceration. And before the 60s, between one-fourth and one-third of all state of all state felony charges led to a trial. But now that's one out of every 20. And part of it is because plea bargains have become so popular. So what are the sentences that they're receiving by like pleading guilty? It depends on the circumstances. Um, In a lot of cases, when you plead guilty, you agree to a reduced sentence for whatever the crime that you're being charged with is. So if, hypothetically, you can be serving up to five years if you're found guilty and you take a plea, depending on a variety of circumstances, you'll just be given community service plus time served that you already spent in jail or something like that. So it's more of an avoidance tactic than anything else. Right. And so what exactly would you say is broken in the system? Like, why is this a systematic issue? There's a lot of different problems. Part of it is that there have been so many things that are criminalized. There were 11 million people who were arrested in 2015. And 
a lot of those crimes are things like driving without a license, hopping a turnstile, like broken windows crimes that target low-income communities and communities of color that are the same people who can't always afford to pay their bail when they're arrested for something like this. And so what options do these people have? Like what sort of foreseeable solution is there, if any? I think bail reform in cities would be a really good place to start. Um, Also, in local, like city and state level, reducing things from criminal to civil offenses would be a pretty big step in easing up the effects that it has on people's lives. Yeah, it's a super complicated system, as we can tell from just these cases. Yeah, and Um, even the public defenders that are supposed to be helping people, like, they're so overworked and overburdened that they're main way of target like of fixing this problem is by encouraging people to plead guilty because like there are there are so few solutions for all of it all right well thanks gabby for giving us some more insight thanks kalila culture Reuters reports that Indian production giant Eros International is in early talks with Amazon, Netflix, and Apple for the rights to its library of over 3,000 Indian films. The deal could be worth about $1 billion. The Hollywood Reporter explained in December that India is home to the most internet users in the world after China, and the demand is high there for locally produced content. Those factors, plus the country's long-booming Bollywood industry, make it really desirable to Apple, Amazon, and Netflix. Their interest means, in turn, audiences outside of India and Indian diaspora communities will be exposed to what the subcontinent has to offer. Maybe the most exciting part of the hype over the Indian market is its intersection with streaming platforms' focus on original content. On August 3rd, Netflix announced that two new Indian original series, Selection Day and Again, will be joining its global streaming offerings. Those series, along with recent original productions like The Incredible Jessica James and stand-up specials from Ali Wong, Hassan Minaj, and Aditi Mittal, show that at least one streaming company is seeing the value in investing in creators of color at home and abroad. There's a lot of tired white nonsense on television and streaming services today. So it's always encouraging when large American companies make concrete moves to actually invest in creators of color and look beyond the types of content they've focused on in the past. Culture. So we talked yesterday on The Dispatch about Arcade Fire's hoax marketing, and the numbers are in, and it looks like it worked. Jeffy Haza is here with me now. Hi, Jeff. Hey. So, Jeff, in case people didn't hear, bring us up to speed on the crazy prank that Arcade Fire pulled on their fans. Arcade Fire has a new album out called Everything Now, and in the weeks, and I guess like about a month and a half leading up to its release, um, they planted stories in different news outlets, and they sort of made all these outrageous claims like there's going to be a dress code at their concerts, and that another was that they were releasing Arcade Fire-branded fidget spinners, all of which to kind of play into this idea that they're pushing in the album about content is infinite and we're in we're all trapped in our phones the same sort of thing that we've heard from arcade fire and a million other people in the past but they do have the number one album in america right now do they (laughs) interesting so so according to this week's billboard top 200 um arcade fire beat out kendrick lamar 
who has been kind of at the top of the charts in the top five since his album came out, um, but not based on streams. So 94,000 actual copies of the album were sold. So that means digital and CDs. Um, so people paid, you know, the full twelve ninety nine or nineteen ninety nine or however much for the full record, whereas most records that are on the top two hundred are there as a result of having you know multiple millions of streams on all of the platforms. Got it. Does that mean that you know the stunt that they pulled worked? Is there any sort of correlation between the pranks and the sales? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a couple things to it. I think one, um, there was a bundle package that was being sold at all of their concerts, which basically guaranteed that if you bought a concert ticket, you were also buying an album. So it's unclear as to whether or not that is the only reason. You know, if we'll see next week if people continue buying the album. Maybe their fan base is a little different than other fan bases. Um, I think, you know, Arcade Fire has kind of been... They, they've been preaching this message for a long time that is very, not necessarily anti-technology, but very wary of our social media lives and our smartphones and this and that. And I think, you know, if you're a, if you're a hardcore fan, which they do have, you know, devoted fans out there, um, I think that's the type of thing that might resonate in a way that influences you to actually buy an album in a, in a way that other artists haven't really tapped into. Right. Well, I'm interested to see how long they stay in the number one spot. I am too. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. That's it for The Dispatch. I'm Kalila Dews. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories.